Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. So let's talk baptism. Uh, you can turn to Romans 6. I, I didn't hear like any rumble of excitement about that. Um, woohoo! All right. So as you turn to Romans 6, um, uh, let's look at this passage. It's a famous one for helping us consider the way to approach our sinning knowing that God has paid the price for each of us and each of those sins in Jesus Christ. The tendency, though, for a wicked, selfish mind like ours is to say, well, then I should just keep on sinning so Christ keeps on forgiving and get more and more glory of him being able to overcome my sin. I mean, he's right, right? That's good, right? Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul uses the topic of Christian baptism to help us understand how we are to walk out our Christian life. Today, we want to take a closer look at this subject in particular and understand the true blessing of baptism. Before we do that, let's take a minute to pray together. Lord, we put this time in your hands. We join together in prayer to ask you to break up the hard and stony ground in our own hearts, that we would be able to have eyes of faith that see reality the things that are around us that we can see with our natural eyes are not the end. But Lord, there is so much more here in the kingdom of heaven. I pray that we would trust you, that you would break down stony hearts so that we might see those come to faith in Christ and then join, join your church. We love you and ask for your leadership in our own lives, for your spirit's work working powerfully in us, giving us wisdom and grace. We need you, Lord, and we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we spent a whole Sunday um, answering the question, how do we enter into the church? Uh, we, we saw that um, the Scripture made it fairly clear that only those who were Christians are part of the church. But then, of course, that begged the question, what is a Christian? Like, like do we have anything that's helpful us to understand? But that sent us to the next question was, how should someone relate to God? And if we can work that out and figure out that existential question, how we as human beings are supposed to relate to God, we'll be closer, I'd say, actually to the answer of how we ought to relate to God. If you remember, I gave you four words to remember when trying to figure out how a human being is to relate to God. This is just pretty simple. God, man, Christ, response. Started with God, moved on to man, went to Christ, and with response. If we don't follow that, we're not going to understand all that the gospel actually is. So after looking at God, the righteous creator, who cannot clear the guilty, 
And then seeing mankind, the accountable creature who sinned by rejecting God's authority in his reign, we finally heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior King who took the penalty for us so that although he could not clear the guilty, we would have the righteousness of Christ and he would take our pain. He would take our punishment. At the end of that, though, we finally came to a spot where we could answer that question rightly with some biblical background. How do we relate to God? Knowing all this to be true, we learn that there's only one response that he requires, faith and repentance. Only one way, his way, trusting him completely, repenting of sin, needing a savior and king. As we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we truly are, we see that there is only one way out for someone else to be our substitute and to take our punishment, for we are the guilty. The good news calls us to repent of our rebellion and sin against a holy and righteous God and to turn him totally, completely trusting the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The person who responds this way is a Christian, is someone who we, we use the term believer, someone who believes. And when a person believes the gospel, when he trusts Jesus Christ and repents of his sin, he is saved, saved from the wrath of God. He is converted. He is transferred from darkness to light. He is delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus, the king of light. He who was dead is now made alive. This person is now united with Christ in his death and resurrection and finds himself on Jesus' team, on his side, no longer against him in opposition. He has a new identity. He is now a different man. The old man has died. And he has been born again with a verdict of righteous when God looks at him. Absolutely amazing. All these analogies and the descriptions that we're talking about are ways of speaking of the change but things that happen to us as we are saved from our sin in the gospel. And we know that this is the truth that has been revealed through the gospel. All of these things, though, uh, help us remember <laughs> that they seem so crazy to the world around us. If you consider his, uh, as much as a rational, unbiased, scientific mind scoffs at this thing that we call salvation, that we hold so dearly to, we know that it's not because we're so smart or we came up with this thing. The word of God has been revealed to us through the scriptures, most importantly through Jesus Christ. And so it's not ours to herald and say, we know what we're talking about. The only reason you and I know what we're talking about is because it's been revealed to us and given to us. And so we humbly submit, this is the only way. There is no other way. We're not making up some sort of dream world <laughs> so people will be more moral and act a certain way and join to be part of this club we call the church. The subjects that we're tackling in this series, these six sermons, the gospel, baptism, etc., are not cornerstone things. They're not even American Christianity things. These are biblical things. They are real transactions. They are real God-designed structures and God-designed ceremonies to show us that what we see with our eyes is not it. It helps us understand and helps to see past our current limited natural vision of the reality that's around us. 
and have realized that we are actually part of the great reality that is both here now, but will come in fullness one day, the kingdom of God. We teach these things as the truth. We don't apologize for that. We don't give you this as one option or as a version of the truth. The reason we do so is, again, not because we are so proud as to think we figured it out, but rather because the Bible reveals these things to us. And so we preach them as truth. The series is, again, not to really help us all understand and be joined up on all things, how Cornerstone works and church, religion, and all to make sure all the different processes are in place. We're after something far more important here. First of all, we actually believe that the Bible is true. And if you believe the gospel, then these things are part and parcel of repenting of sin and trusting Christ. The things that we talked about, salvation, especially over these next couple weeks, salvation, baptism, church membership, the Lord's Supper, true Christian community, all of these things, get this, are a clarifying presentation of reality. What, what's real? Again, our, our eyes cannot see that. And so how do we do this? By faith. The Bible is creating for us the whole true picture of what reality is. The problem is it doesn't match up with what you and I see with our natural eyes, what we hear, what we think, even what we feel. And so it seems in some ways sometimes so foreign to us. But I'll tell you, because it's just true, the church didn't come up with these things over the years to institutionalize them so that they could have longevity and consistency as an organization. These topics come from the very pages of Scripture, all over the pages of Scripture. They are His design, and they help us consider how we are to act as a body of believers under the head, Jesus Christ, our King. So we want to go to the Bible and see how it describes the church, what the church is supposed to do, what does it act like. And all of this is born out of what we talked about last week, the change that has worked in us through God's Holy Spirit to come from rejection to submission and love and joy, coming to Him in faith and repentance. And you could really say then that these sermons, these, this, these six that we're working on here, um, are to help us understand that our salvation was never just a personal thing. It never was. It is a corporate church thing. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor here at Cornerstone Bible Church. He didn't save us to be individual Christians, doing our best to kind of live our relationship with him well so we can just, you know, have a good life and make sure that somehow he's pleased with us individually. We're connected to Jesus and therefore to all other people that are connected to Jesus. And we have communion with them because of, guess what, Jesus because of our relationship with him now, we are connected to those who know Christ, the body of Christ, the church. This is his design, not ours. We take our cues and try, try graciously and humbly to search the scriptures and understand what Jesus, our king, tells us, and we want to live that way. I'll say this also, careful, friend. Um, we aren't the only ones trying to preach to you. The world around you constantly preaches to you. And I'm not talking about Fox News or CNN or all that and all their agenda and propaganda. I'm talking about everyone, your neighbor, the way that everything goes at your work, the way that your children, society in general, the way that you even feel inside you. All those different things around you preach to you something different. Again, it's our natural eyes seeing those things, interpreting them by natural means. 
And those who hate God interpret it in the way that they wish to. And so we understand that they're smart and they're preaching to us all, this, all the time. Our understanding then of God, love, support, faith, community, and even the church itself can easily be shaped by our culture, by the world around us, telling us what's actually going on. And the problem is we actually believe it. We end up thinking that what they think about church must be true. What they think about God must be true. It's kind of what we experience as well sometimes, besides the experience of faith. We see that they can easily be shaping us in our thoughts. And we as pastors especially want to strongly warn you against this. That is, in part, if you remember this, the job of shepherds. Not only are we to proclaim and herald Jesus Christ, which we do regularly, but we are to also warn against bad doctrine that would damage you and destroy your soul. And you may not think that this, a bad understanding of the church, or bad understanding of baptism, is, is bad doctrine. It's just like what the world says. All that worldliness creeping in is a teaching. Is something that you and I believe. It gets under our skin and we end up living by that story instead of what the Bible says. And so as we come, whether it's in our community groups, whether it's when we open the Bible together, whether it's through this in the service time, we constantly need to be reoriented by what the Bible says is going on in reality. And so this is how we come to it. If we take our definitions from the world, even unconsciously, because I think that's what actually happens. Rarely are we going to uh, the universities and saying, what do you think about God? And that's what I'm going to, no, usually it's unconscious and it's just happening to us. But if we take our definitions from the world, we will be living according to the flesh. And we will not be following our Lord and Savior Jesus, but a different master. Master of popular opinion. Master of wealth. Master of security and safety. And just even the master of what works well and what we see around us. All of these masters are incapable and unloving. They will fail us. Worse than that, they will lead us away from the kingdom of God. And so today, we want to take another step in this direction. This whole series is bound up together. This is not like six individual sermons handling different things. We're trying, again, to paint a picture of what's real what's actually going on here. And we're going to take another step in that direction. Last week, we worked through the gospel and understanding the proper way to respond to God. But today, I want to talk about baptism. I want to look at this and help us walk through this. Because it's something that we all believe in. We, we all think it's right and the Bible says it, so of course it must be important in some way, but we, we do it, Jesus said to do it, so we do it. Without thinking about big picture why he would call us to do that why it is important for us. It's one of my goals today then to help us to understand the importance, and get this word, usefulness of baptism. Going back to last week for a minute, you and I may think of the act of relating properly to God as a very personal, alone decision. And you'd be partly right in that. Don't get me wrong here. I mean, no one can pray you into conversion. You must be converted. No one can repent for you. You have to do it. No one can trust God for you and make him king. It's impossible. You have to do that. Salvation from the wrath of God can only come as an individual repents of their own sin and trusts Christ as their Savior and Lord. In this way, then, we rightly think of salvation as an individual thing. But this does not mean that he saved you 
to walk with him alone in your personal relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of this phrase because it's a good one as well. In this way, though, we hear this language used to talk about our Christian experience. We talk about a personal relationship with the Lord as though that's all that matters and nothing else. You might have heard it said something like this along the way. You don't have to worry about all that other Christian church stuff as long as you have a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, I, I think the intention is good. I think that's, that's if I can just be as, as helpful and, and uh, trusting as possible, usually there's a, there's a good idea or a reason why people would say something like that. They want to make sure that we don't think the doing of church justifies us. They want to make sure that we don't take that somehow as, if you do all this church stuff, then you'll be saved, but rather trusting Christ alone. And that, that's great. I think they're trying to start with the first thing first, the primary thing, and keep people from believe, believing that they can somehow be justified by a bunch of Christian stuff. I think that's what many of them mean, but most of the time when this type of language is used and believed, Christian conversion takes on a very unbiblical lifestyle. Like something after this happens seems to not match up with the Scriptures. The problem with this idea that, that all that matters is a personal relationship with the Lord and you don't have to do any of this Christian church stuff is that the whole New Testament teaches against us that, uh, completely other than that. You do need to be concerned with all that Christian church stuff. The New Testament is filled with letters and books written to corporate churches scattered across the continent. I mean, there it is. The assumption is that Christian church stuff is the primary content of all these New Testament books. This is why they are writing, because the church needs to hear the inspired Word of God for them as they form and grow their churches in different towns, in different cities, different contexts, different cultures and peoples. When we consider our response to the gospel, the act of properly re, you know, relating to God, we often keep it in the context of the personal or the alone realm. And especially in our day and age, we want to keep personal things personal. Don't just air your stuff out for everybody. The problem is, like I said, that the Bible speaks to Christians not as individuals primarily, although it does, but to the church as a corporate identity, a group of people who have repented of their sin, who trust Christ as their Savior King, and, here we go, who are baptized into Christ and the fellowship of the other saints the other Christians who have also declared their allegiance to Christ alone. And this is what we need to consider this morning. This is the role here. What is the role of baptism in the life of an individual believer in the life of a corporate church? What is baptism all about? Is it like uh, an initiation into a new club or a new group? And if you do this thing, then you're in. Um, I played four years of soccer at college, and uh, about two weeks before school would start, we'd always go up for, call it soccer camp, it'd be preseason, it'd be like tryouts, and then training, and then skills work, and then building a team and preparing to start the season at the beginning of the school year. And whenever we do that, it was brutal, uh, but it would be like a, like a fellowship of sufferings between these guys, because you're doing three or four days, you're exhausted, everyone's so tired, they're going to bed by like 8.30, and all you're doing is practicing, running, eating, sleeping. Practicing, running, eating, sleeping. That's all you're doing, nonstop. One year we thought it would be kind of fun, though, I think this is my junior year, where we got all the freshmen together, and we said, we're going to create an initiation for them. 
So in the middle of the night at 1 p.m., or 1 a.m., excuse me, we got them all up out of bed, lined everyone up in front of the dorms, and we said we're going to go for a little night run. A couple miles. We're going to do this all together, pitch black, no lights, something like that. So we have to stay close. Um, but the one stipulation is they had to follow everybody, and they also had to dip their hands before they ran. They have to dip them in peanut butter. And that was the, the, the way that we decided to initiate that. Now, you can imagine it's extremely inconvenient to run like this with peanut butter on your hands. And then also, as you heat up and miles go by, all your pores begin to open, and the peanut butter just sneaks right in. And so for days afterwards, they all smelled like peanuts. So it was just kind of a fun thing. It was a silly initiation. Uh, nothing didn't, didn't really hurt them or anything like that. Um, but as you can imagine, having it this way, they were part of the group, and they were initiated in this way. Now, there was no significance to the peanut butter on their hands at all to becoming part of the soccer team. It wasn't like they were part of the Peanuts gang. That, that was nothing to do with it. It was just kind of something silly. Other places and people and cults and groups have all kinds of different weird initiations, some completely ridiculous. And oftentimes, they have nothing to do with actually what's going on. So the question here is, especially from the outside looking in, are Christians the same way? They just get together and they dunk this person under the water. Oh, we were going to leave you down for a long time, but we brought you up, ha, ha, ha. Is, is that kind of initiation going on? Or what's, what's the purpose here? Now, we know that it's not an arbitrary act at all. This is no arbitrary act, and it wasn't something that the church made up along the way to initiate the freshman Christians. Let's take a minute here, uh, the rest of our time, and understand what baptism is. But then I also want to ask the question, why should we do baptism? Why should we be performing this? So, number one, what is Christian baptism? Christian baptism is, get this word, an initial sign of what has happened in the new covenant. An initial sign. It doesn't happen over and over again. A believe, uh, believers get baptized over and over again. That happens, we, we kind of join in that when we come together over and over again for the Lord's Supper. But in baptism, we only see that happen once in the life of a believer. So what we have here is an initial sign. The Lord's Supper, again, is ongoing sign, a meal of the new covenant. But baptism is the initial sign of the new covenant. It is a sign or a symbol or even, if I can say this, a depiction or a portrayal of a believer's union with Jesus Christ. It is the act of immersing a true believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the believer going through these steps in him and showing, therefore, their union. Listen to Romans 6, 3, and 4. Instead of doing the first two, I'm just going to read 3 and 4 to you, and you'll see it's so clear. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The act of a person being plunged into the water, a place of death and judgment, but yet not staying there and being brought back up to life, out of the water, out of death, to new life. All of this is portraying that you and I have been joined to Jesus Christ in his death and that we will also be joined with him in life. Spiritual, real life, that which matters and is not judged. It is a wonderful picture of the gospel and our connection with Jesus. It is also a public display, an act of both the church 
and the individual. First, the, the church affirms that what's happened in this believer is true and enacts this baptism with them. And what they do is they're showing or portraying and affirming what has happened in an individual Christian's life. And the individual, what they are doing, coming to the church and proclaiming their allegiance to Christ and his people. He is depicting, through these physical actions, the new birth, the death of the old man and the resurrection we experience in Jesus Christ. And all of this is done for the church and for the world to see. It is meant to be public. It's an opportunity to obey and to show the world what has happened to the person on the inside. Or we could rightly say this. It is a way to visibly show what's happened in the invisible realm. Again, reality. What's really going on. This act of baptism is showing what's happened on the inside. As best we know how. Again, someone could be fooling us and telling us complete lies. And that's part of the reality of trying to work with any new believer and see, do they understand the gospel? Or do they understand what it means to be in Christ? And so as we, as, as pastors, think this through, you need to pray for us as well. Because we end up talking to so many different people and trying to understand, do they know Jesus Christ? And there's only so much that we can, we can ask and watch their lifestyle but in the end, we're saying, yes, we believe that this is what's going on, and so we will enact this important ceremony of baptism. One day, this reality, though, will be made clear, and the world will know that the kingdom of God is no imaginary dreamland, but rather the one true reality of the universe. But for this time, God has given us Christian baptism to be a sign, a symbol, a portrayal of what is actually happening in the life of a believer, regeneration. One other note here, it, it certainly is a symbol of the union with Christ. I think that's the main one. But it also symbolizes the washing away of sin. Listen to two passages, Titus 3, 4, and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we know what's actually going on. He's actually washing us. But how does that connect with baptism? Listen to Acts 22, 16. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The New Testament writers also refer to baptism as a cleansing or a washing of sin. Not to mean that the water actually cleansed you from sin, but by faith in regeneration, Jesus Christ removed from you the sin and gave you his righteousness. And in baptism, this truth is acted out. And the act becomes a symbol of what has really happened to a person who has trusted Christ, repented of their sin. So this is what baptism is. But the next question for us is, why do we do it? Or why should we be doing it? I'll answer this with three points. Number one is the no-brainer. Christ commands it. That's easy. Mic drop, done. Okay, we're done here. But that, that's not the only reason. Christ commanded it. Second is that this act is a means of blessing and grace to both the individual and the church. And then thirdly, it, ha it helps define the church. So let's start with the first point. Christ commands it. It was Jesus who told his disciples to baptize those who were ready to follow him. In the Great Commission, again, we always think of it as a missions passage, and that's right. But consider Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as a way for us to consider what he is making disciples, a new people. He is making disciples of Christ, not asking for salvation decisions. 
He's not telling them to go out, gather a bunch of people together, and see if they'll pray a prayer for Christ. He is saying, go out and make disciples. And this is what they should look like. Let me read it for you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is about making disciples, not seeing people saved per se. This is about baptizing them in the name of the triune God with all authority to spread the kingdom to the nations. This is about teaching disciples to observe all that Jesus had taught and commanded his disciples as they entered into this new identity, the church. Christian, excuse me, Christian baptism, excuse me, Christian baptism is part of our commission from Jesus. He sees it as an important part of making disciples. And so we ought to as well. So did the command stick? Did, did, did the church actually do it? After Jesus has risen and ascended to heaven, we uh, watch as the early church makes this, Christian baptism, a requirement for all who will be saved and be part of the church. In Acts 2, Peter preaches the sermon at, at Pentecost. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to kind of sum it up and catch the last part as they are trying to now respond to the gospel. Acts 2.37 says this, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked, crooked generation. Here's the response. So those who received his word were baptized, and, were, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, what were the 3,000 souls added to? The church. When these people heard the gospel preached, and when they repented of their sin and trusted Christ, they understood that they were no longer individuals in the kingdom of the world. They understood that they were no longer autonomous. They understood that, although they never really were, they understood they were no longer able to do whatever they were wanting to do. They were no longer slaves to sin. They understood that they were citizens of a new, different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. They had a different allegiance, and they followed a different rule, the law of Christ. They were now part of a different people. They had joined the saints in becoming part of the church. And here at the very beginning of their entrance into the community, we find them taking part in a significant, visible, Jesus-commanded ceremony, baptism. Peter and the apostles require them to repent and be baptized just as Jesus had commanded. Listen to Peter's words again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, real quickly, you and I noticed, especially if you were here last week, we're missing a word there that we're kind of uncomfortable. Like, where's the believe word? Where's the faith word? If I can just put your fears to rest for a minute... Underlying this entire process is the fact 
that if you didn't believe this stuff, if you didn't trust him, there is no way you'd be repenting and be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Remember who Jesus is in this day. The truth is, his exhortation, Peter's exhortation here is very James-esque. It's like, you may say you are going to repent or that you want to be on this side. I'm telling you, repent and be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. You got to remember, no one is going to be doing this if they don't believe in Jesus. Remember that Jesus has been killed for calling himself the Messiah. Remember Peter, devout Peter, runs away from everyone after denying Christ three times for fear that he would be associated with Jesus. And here, the command is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we have repentance, trust, and here we have baptizing in the name of Jesus. This was a public act, a declaration of allegiance and obedience to Jesus Christ, the slain king of the Jews, the one who rose again. Baptism is commanded for us all who take the name Christian. It's not just another option added to the Christian life, stuff that we need to do. Like, uh, you could do this or this or this. Once you become a Christian, you can have these add-ons. No, there's no category for that whatsoever. Again, it wasn't thought up by some Christian leaders sitting around a table trying to come up with a funny initiation for all the freshman Christians. This is Christ's design for those who have chosen to follow him. He commands this action as an important part of true Christian discipleship. So, we do too. This is right. And this is what we not only recommend, no, we require the same thing. That if you are to call yourself a Christian and to be part of the church, you must be baptized, brother or sister. It's not an option for the true believer. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, but think this baptism thing is weird, and it's like a little bit inconvenient, and it's kind of embarrassing in front of all kinds of people, I just humbly remind you that Jesus commanded it, not us. It is therefore the first act of public obedience to the new king. And without it, the church can visibly see a person's unwillingness to obey their Lord. Therefore, if you're a Christian, but you've not obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ in Christian baptism, you should obey and you should be baptized. So this is the first point. Christ commands it. The second, though, number two, this act is a means of blessing and grace to both the individual and the church. Now, oftentimes, we're careful not to throw out the word means of grace when we refer to anything that we do or participate in because we're very careful, it has a very strong connotation, have some sort of magical spiritual power, and we don't want to trust in that. Now, that's true. What I mean is that some have misused this term to speak of something that can confer God's favor on someone automatically outside of them trusting and obeying Christ, almost as though it's Christian magic. We and the Bible obviously doesn't mean that when we use this term. The Bible doesn't treat water or the dunking of a person or the incantation of saying in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, those words as some sort of magic to do the work of regeneration, bringing someone to maturity. Otherwise, man, we just have like water everywhere and be pushing people into it and say, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Like, oh, we're getting everyone baptized. We understand that that's not what's happening. There's something far more important that's happening. We shouldn't be thinking of these words as somehow the dunking procedure has the power to do this or the water. They don't. 
they, just like other things, must relate through understanding faith and trusting God alone. Just like the empty words spoken in a dead prayer don't have any power, without a heart of faith. This is what we see here. There is power in baptism, not because of the water or because of the dunking or because of the words spoken, but rather these things in obedience by faith in Christ and asking him to help me through this act of obedience. Just like the act of dead preaching on a Sunday morning doesn't have any power without the ministry of the Spirit. And those listeners by faith responding in obedience. Just like the communion cup and bread, they don't have any innate power in them at all except taking with faith, that it blesses the receiver with faith and encourages the communion of the church with their Savior and with one another. Christian baptism is a special ceremony that encourages our faith and causes us to grow in trust as we watch again another believer portray visibly what we know to be true in their heart. Christian baptism is special. Another person gone from rejecting God destined to hell and punishment and the wrath of God being poured out against them to repenting and submitting and trusting God alone and loving their Lord. And this person has now been transferred into the kingdom of heaven and they've been made alive. It is a way for us to feel and touch and see and hear the water sloshing around and seeing this thing happen in front of us and see this play out the promises of God in a very real, tangible way. It's almost like we're getting a picture of what's real, but we're getting it in a very small way. It blesses us with increased faith and confidence that Christ has indeed killed our old man as the believer is plunged into the water, and that he will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his as he is raised up. And in this way, we are given grace in this action. We are given grace to believe and to obey our Savior King. But third, so that's the second thing. The first one is that Jesus told us to do this. The second reason why is that it's a means of blessing and grace. The third, why should we practice baptism? The act of Christian baptism shows the church and the world who has joined the ranks of the true king. It is through this act that a Christian goes public with their faith in Christ. And it tells everyone that they belong to the church of Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sin. They've trusted Christ. They are willing to submit to Jesus as king and gladly identify with the rest of his people. And not because they are so great. Sorry, guys. We're just not that great. That's not why we join a church. I would guard against that and warn you. The reason we join the ranks of Jesus Christ is because of Jesus Christ. People just like them, hopeless, desperate, without Jesus, and in need of salvation. That's who we are. Beggars telling other beggars where to find bread, even at the foot of the cross of our Lord, and now have been joined, become brothers in the body of Christ and sisters, not based on our relationships with each other, not things that we like to join up and watch a football game together. No, our, our, our connection is in, in something far more real and eternal in Jesus Christ himself. When we see this thing, we understand that it's far more important and significant than just some sort of silly initiation. The public act of baptism shows who a person really is. It is for this reason that there should never be a Christian 
Never should there be a Christian who claims to be part of a church who isn't baptized. Christian baptism marks off who is and who isn't a part of Jesus Christ's church. Now, I said this when we first had the baptism of Jim Benson and Amanda Orweiler, and I'd say it again with joy. In this act, these Christians are making a public declaration that they belong to Jesus Christ and his church, and that they no longer belong to Satan in the world, but rather are now in the kingdom of heaven. And with that, we rejoice. This is why we ought, this is one of the third reasons why we ought to practice Christian baptism. Let me go back to the beginning, though. We start in Romans 6. In this passage, we saw Paul encourage us to live righteously before God and not to continue on in sin because, don't remember, we've died with Christ. And now we can walk with him in newness of life. In a moment, I want to go to Colossians 3 and hear what else Paul has to say for us. Before that, though, let's just take a minute. Why did we do this today? What, what can be the takeaways from our discussion, this sermon? What, what action items do you have as a believer as you sit and listen to this? I got three for you. I'll make it real easy. You don't have to do the work. Actually, you need to do the work. You need to think this through. Number one, believe what God has done in Christ is true. Brother and sister, repent of your unbelief and believe that what he is saying here is true. The reality that we talked about this morning is not Christian dreamland. It's real. It's the truth. Trust the king who made us part of his church and find grace in the one then who saves us. Number two, for those who have not obeyed the Lord in believer's baptism, prayerfully consider the words that we looked at here this morning. Again, there should never be a Christian who claims to be part of the church who has not been baptized. Consider obeying your Lord and joining his church through baptism. It's not really an option. If you are a believer, this is something you must do. Number three, believer, remember your precious baptism. I'm not talking about remember like when you stepped down into the waters or you slipped and it was really funny and you remember all who was there and all the sentimentality. That can be fun too. That's not what I'm talking about though. I'm talking about remembering your Christian baptism, rejoicing in the baptism both of your own and then other brothers and sisters that reminds us of the truth of our new identity in Jesus Christ. We no longer live as dead ones, slaves to sin, but can live in newness of life through Jesus Christ. Baptism reminds us of that, and we constantly should look back to that and wonder and be thankful and be encouraged and be, again, our, our faith encouraged to follow him. Therefore, I'll leave you with this encouragement in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Now, he's, he's writing to alive people. So what is he talking about? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, there is great hope for us this morning. Not because we really like the way our church is, but because Jesus Christ, when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. Despite our sufferings, despite the hardness of this life, loss and pain and struggle, we have hope. We have hope in him, our Savior pointing us, knowing that we died in our, just with Christ, but we will live again with him. We can be sure then 
and confident the very end is ours in Christ in sure joy knowing that we will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ceremony which reminds us and gives us things to hear and see and touch and and know, Lord, that you are giving us the truth and that even we may not see with our natural eyes, with the eyes of faith, we realize that we have been buried with Christ and that we will be raised again with him in newness of life. We thank you and ask to help us to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.